Have you ever done that thing where you go to the fridge and you open it and you and you look in and you realise that you're not actually hungry? No. <laughs> well, see, actually, this is especially important for you then, Graham, because it's about <laughs> distinguishing between one hunger and another. Uh, but do you know what I mean? You get there and you go, some kind of need has brought me here, whether it's boredom, there's a hole to fill, and you get to the fridge door, it's open, there's good stuff in there, and you realise... Actually, I'm here for the wrong reasons. I shouldn't actually be here. One of the things about the wonderful rain that we've had um, is we need to be careful that we don't let the kind of flourishing that will come with rain, with natural rain, confuse in us that there's a deeper thirst. I'm not sure if you if you get what I'm saying, some of you do. There's a danger actually. There's a danger that when we're doing well in the natural, in the material, that we it sort of masks the deep thirst of our hearts. And um, you know, one of the things that the drought and the fires did for us is it brought us to pray. Be pity if the rain meant that we stopped. And um, we we. I mean, it serves as a bit of a segue, really, for where I did want to launch off. But we're at the beginning of a new year in so many ways. And what I want to do today is maybe just lay a few things out, offer something of an appetizer, actually, in the sermon. You might get a sense of unanswered question in it. And that's because we, we want to go deep, actually, this year again, as we did last year. So last year, we looked at the theory of exile and actually do is my slide working there um calvin i'll flick past this so this is kind of going to be the tagline for for the year but i'll get us here we looked at at exile as a lens for reading all of scripture and we had to dig a bit. And, and I think actually there's a sense in which we're going to have to continue to dig. We're going to have to continue to take that exile lens to God's word as we come to it. We always come with the lens. And I think naturally we come with sort of 21st century Australian lens when we read scripture. One of the things that spending a whole year thinking about exile did is it showed us, I think, that part of our lens is certain privilege actually that means much of what Scripture says can be lost on us. Uh, standing at the end of, you know, millennia now or centuries of, of, of Christianity in the West, um, there's a certain privilege and even some sort of power and prestige that comes with being a Christian. And, and we might not have picked up what we picked up last year, that much of Scripture is a minority report. So... 
there there were these uh, you know sort of lauded seasons where where things seem to be going really well for God's people Israel. But actually, they're a blip compared to, you know, 400 years of slavery, a century essentially in exile, um, centuries as a sort of group of people struggling to kind of maintain identity and security, being jostled by empires on either side. Um, And so when you get that, a whole heap of stuff about the Bible makes sense. These aren't necessarily the stories and songs, the history of people who have power. <laughs> and so if we have power, uh, we can miss important things. And um, I think there's a word in that for us. One of the reasons why we went there is because it's very likely that um, our song soon as Christians might be a minority report again. Western civilization is changing and, um, and Christianity doesn't have the same sort of social kind of uh, cohesion to it. People don't come to church anymore just because it's the thing to do. You've probably noticed that because maybe your brother and sister or child or parents don't come anymore. And, and I do actually think that we should worry for our society, you know, we should worry for, for the West. But I don't think we should worry for the church Because the church needs to be a place where God is present. And I was just thinking this morning, uh, there was a few like last minute changes with rosters and that kind of stuff. Um, And I thought, actually, it's so possible that we could nail all of that stuff, that the worship could be somehow better than it was, that this sermon could definitely be better than it's going to be. And, and you would have a sense of satiation at the end of it. You've come and seen people that you love. You've had a good cup of coffee afterwards. You've, you've sort of been spiritually edified somehow. At least enough to get you through the week till next Sunday. Right? That's kind of like natural water, isn't it? <laughs> stuff that we need. Stuff that's good in the natural. Rain that we would pray for wouldn't be a pity if we had that and it lasted us for a week, but we missed out on the life-giving water that Jesus has to offer us, the water from which, once we've drunk, we will never go thirsty. This exile thing that we did last year, one of the most kind of compelling, potent passages that, I mean, we looked at a lot that came through to me, was this out of Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered the city that we no longer have access to, the city that we're, you know, hundreds of miles from, the city where God dwelt amongst us, where the temple was. And um, I like this passage for our purposes this morning because it also mentions the lens that I think we need to read Scripture through this year at least. And that is the river. The river. And in the same way that I think we suggested last year that understanding exile 
and reading scripture through the lens of exile helps us to understand it better. I really feel like the word for this year is that reading scripture through the lens of the river is going to be a source of richness and blessing for us. And this word kind of came to us at the end of the exile series when we looked at uh, Ezekiel's prophecy and he has a vision of a river. He's in Babylon looking back to Jerusalem and he has this vision of a river. Um, So since then, I, I feel like... You know, there's been lots of river words. We sang uh, yesterday at our kind of team launch uh, this new song that Charlie will probably introduce soon about about God drawing us to the river. I'm sure you can think of passages off the top of your head that mention the river. It's an understandably rich metaphor, isn't it, as a source of life and and prosperity and peace and all these things. But as I've grappled and gone to Scripture and looked for what it has to say about the river, it's occurred to me that the Scriptures of Israel, so the Old Testament, are something of a record of a river-haunted people. People who are haunted by the river. And if I had a title for this morning's message, it would be River Haunted. Because this is the sort of appetizer that I want to put out for us for the year ahead. I want you to think about whether you're a river-haunted person. Whether you live in a river-haunted world. And I think it begins with this guy that God focuses on early in the story. The father of his people, Abraham. And Abraham, uh, when we come into his story, he is in the middle of two great rivers in terms of where he lives. So he's in the the birthplace uh, that that archaeologists and anthropologists and historians would point to of human civilization. actually. The place where we think that the first crops were propagated. The place that we think that the first bricks were developed. The first great buildings went up. Um, and it was that place because of these rivers. Does anyone know? Any geography teachers know what those two rivers are that sort of go around the Fertile Crescent? The Murray. The, Murray. <laughs> yeah. the Tigris and the Euphrates, thanks. Yeah, so um, the Fertile Crescent, you might have learnt about it in middle school SOS. I remember teaching about it in middle school SOS. Proximity to these rivers uh, helped humans to work out how to farm, basically. And once they could farm, they could live in one place rather than move around all the time. Once they could live in one place, they could begin to develop a more sophisticated material culture. Abraham is, for the time, the only place where it's really happening. Uh, If it's not between the Tigris and the Euphrates... Uh, we probably don't have much of a record of it these days because of the fact that the way that civilization sprung up there led to building and agriculture and all these things that have kind of left a record. And God says to him, it's on the screen, go from your country, from your people, from your father's household to a land that God knows where it is actually. Actually, I'm God. Uh, I'll tell you about it when we get there. But he, he says to Abraham, 
you're going to leave where it's at. You're going to leave the river for the wilderness. <laughs> you, you want to know that it was God, wouldn't you? And we know the story. Abraham trusted God and God takes him on this journey. And uh, it does take him into the wilderness for a significant period of time. But he leaves the river behind. Exodus 12. A kind of echoing story. Abraham's descendants have been in Egypt for several centuries. Again, we see a sort of a hub of civilization because of the Nile, right? And the Nile is a source of uh, great fertility and flourishing. Later on during the Roman Empire, it was sort of seen as the breadbasket of that whole Mediterranean region. So fruitful was it. And Abraham's descendants are slaves there. And God focuses in on a single individual, Moses, and says, I want you to take these people away from the river. Again, <laughs> into the wilderness. And eventually, uh, we know the story, they end up at a fairly arable little strip of land between the Mediterranean Sea and the desert. God has called people away from the river. A few weeks ago in the lectionary, I came across Psalm 46 and it's a beautiful psalm of God sort of um, vindicating his people. The suggestion is that David may have written it after a battle with some of their neighbours where he, he's kind of praising God and saying, if we've had any victory, if we've got any security, it's because of you, God. And in the middle of this psalm, this passage, there is a river whose streams make glad Jerusalem, the city of God, Zion, the holy place where the Most High dwells. And I've read this psalm many times and I, I had spent quite a bit of time in it in this particular instance where all of a sudden it occurred to me and I've shared this thought with some of you at a leaders meeting I've been to Jerusalem there's no river there and I thought that's a strange thing for David to say <laughs> there is a river whose streams make glad Jerusalem when there's no river there and I thought, did I get that wrong? went to Google Maps, I couldn't really see anything. And then I thought, maybe I should do what I'm paid to do and actually go to a Bible commentary. And um, it was more work than going to Google Maps. But uh, it confirmed what I thought, confirmed what Google Maps had shown me. Actually, they're not really sure why David said this. Uh, so as Christians, we might be able to superimpose something in, but let's remember that it might be for us, but it wasn't written to us. So in David's context... What's going on? Well, some people said maybe it's a reference to the Jordan, but probably not because the Jordan's like 50 k's away from Jerusalem. And um, I don't know if you've seen the Jordan, but I reckon if you went down to Kedron Brook today with the amount of rain we've had in the last just couple of days, it's probably <laughs> equally as impressive as a body of water as the Jordan is. So it's not a place that you would consider it a great blessing to have to walk three days to to get water to take back to the city. An article I want to suggest this morning of a river hauntedness. What does David mean 
when he says that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the place where God dwells. As I thought about this, the closest thing I could come in David's moment is there is the evocation of a river. There is the memory of a river. There is the haunting, I want to suggest this morning, of a river for God's people in Jerusalem. And um, it's here in the temple. Now, you won't find a really obvious river in the temple. But what we do have in the temple, and this is country that we've kind of gone over a little bit the last couple of years, is a model of something else. It's a model of the original temple. It shares a great deal with the tabernacle uh, in this sense. But does anyone remember that original temple that I'm talking about? Eden, yeah. So the temple is a picture of the Garden of Eden that we read about in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and a little in Genesis 3. And it's a picture for us of a place where God intends to dwell with humanity, where they are to be in one another's presence, where we, as humans, were supposed to be able to live with God. And um, if you think about that original temple, Eden... There was a river there. Genesis 2 verse 10 says this, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. And this is a little bit mysterious. I've got some thoughts on it which I won't completely download on you right now. But where were temples generally in the ancient world? High places. Where do rivers flow from? High places. Two of the rivers that are mentioned in Genesis 2 are a little bit, we're a little bit unsure about where they are. The other two are the Tigris and the Euphrates, interestingly enough. So, at least on a symbolic level, there's a kind of picture of a source from which the sources of natural life flow, right? And I'll leave your imaginations to kind of try and connect some dots there. But there is this river that flows through and waters Eden, the original temple in which human, humans were supposed to dwell with God, uh, that, that then goes on and feeds into the natural world in a way that we still have some access to. Now, if you know the story, you know that humans lost access to that original river the river that's, that formed the headwaters of those four rivers that we would take to be in the known world. And here's a picture of um, the eviction of Adam and Eve. Because whilst God intended that we should dwell together with him in that garden temple, um, I used the image yesterday of it being a bit like us saying, actually, we feel like we can do a better job decorating and looking after this place. God, if you could kind of just leave it to us and get out of here, that'd suit us just fine. And um, 
We lost the right as human beings to dwell in that kind of intimacy with God, to live in that temple with God. And so as Israel progressed, they build these structures where the presence of God can dwell, but there's no access really for the every man and woman to that place. And so in the temple, those, um, I've got a little pointy thing here. Those two beings there represent the beings that are guarding the way back to Eden, right? Um, the kids have this really great, what's that book called? But it's got this tagline, because of your sin, you can't come in. So they say that, because of your sin, you can't come in. We can't actually get in there. We can't get back to the river. The story of Israel's scriptures, and we're going to go to them in more depth over the year, is of a nation, of a people haunted by that river, haunted by the knowledge of the fact that God intended to live with them face to face, to dwell with them, to be present amongst them. But they were cut off through their own sin, through our own sin. We're cut off from that presence. We're cut off from that source of life, which is in fact the source of all life. Israel was a river-haunted nation. And I want to suggest this morning actually that we live in a river haunted world to that extent you could afford a multi-million dollar property down on the brown snake and wouldn't that be lovely I love that our slow windy sleepy river and who knows you could be haunted by a river you could have it right there you could have a dock you could have a boat you could have everything to enjoy it and it could be like going to the refrigerator having this deep sense that there's nothing in there that can actually hit the spot for you. Does it sound like the world that you live in? Are your neighbours and friends people who long for something that somewhere in the back of their imagination somehow a hauntedness by the fact that life's not quite as it should be, that there's got to be something more, that whatever we fill ourselves with, we're still hungry. As much as we drink of this beautiful water that falls from the sky, we're still thirsty. No river, I think we know, No thing in the natural world can save us. And I think those in the Old Testament who seem to have a vision, whether it's Ezekiel or the psalmist, whether that's David who who talks about a river whose streams make glad the city of God, John's uh, gospel records that Jesus says, actually, the prophets, they get a glimpse of it. 
from time to time. You know, God, God shows them. He gives them almost like a temporary access to the river. But by and large, the story of history, much of scripture, is of people who are haunted by a river that we would know we were created to live by, but we don't have access to anymore. And then, and I'm going to get the band up in a moment because we're going to have communion um, together. And then along comes Jesus. He says this, Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. It's wonderful the way that it brings the promise of the Old Testament to a culmination, the way that Jesus actually says there is a way back to Eden. There is a way back to the source of life. There is a way back to living in the presence of God. There is a way to drink and never be thirsty again. There is a way that all of those needs that have been bouncing around inside your imagination that you can never quite meet can be met and it's in me all you have to do is believe but I don't want to issue it so early in the year as a consolation for us I want to issue it this morning as a challenge because if we're Jesus people should be water bearers in a river haunted world we should be a source of life it's not just that we should feel full and satiated it's that it should be flowing out of us right I felt early in the year that God gave me a picture as I was working uh, walking to work uh, of a man walking through the desert in biblical times who was sloshing as, as he walked. Imagine being stranded in the desert where it's so hard to find water and someone just sloshes past you all of a sudden. Someone who knows how to get the water, who knows where it's at, who's got more than enough, who's actually struggling to carry everything that they've got on them. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone here. I, I'm... I'm under conviction myself. Am I a water carrier? Does the river of life flow from within me? I want it to. Is there anyone else here who wants it? I think this is what Jesus is saying it's all about in a river haunted world in a dry world if you believe in me you're part of that river life you're part of that river you are the water bearer you're the slosher you're the one who leaves a trail through the desert a damp trail You're the one around whom green things spring up 
Could we stand? I'm going to ask the ushers out here this morning. Again from John's Gospel, chapter 6. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died in the desert. But who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. We've got 10 minutes till 11. That's enough time to come out and, um, and grab the elements. Uh, we'll do what we've been doing for a while now, which is once it hits 11, you're most welcome and most blessed to uh, get on with your day, even if that means going out to the cafe and, and having a cup of tea or coffee with someone. But if you want to stay and worship, we're going to worship. And whether you stay or whether you go, my challenge to you this morning is to come to receive the bread and the wine. Are you hungry? You should be. Because there's plenty of people that are. And there is real food and real drink available for those who would believe in Christ and who would come to Him and say, Jesus, fill me. Fill me today. Fill me for the rest of 2020. Fill me here. Fill me as I go to work and to school this week. Come receive life. Ask for life. He wants to offer it to you. Amen. God, as we come to the table this morning, mindful again of the sacrifice of Jesus. We're grateful again for the offer of life. Lord, by your grace, help us to embrace it fully. Help us to eat of that bread of eternal life. Help us to drink of eternal life. Help us not to be happy with substitutes, Lord. Help us not to be satisfied with full, full tanks of natural water or full bank accounts or beautiful river views here in the natural. Lord, may we cultivate a thirst.
true life. We thank you, Lord, that there is a river. There is a river. Help us to be it. Help us to live in it. Amen. Why don't you come, grab some bread.